They keep coming. Two million illegal immigrants in California. The federal government won't stop them at the border. Will you help me defeat 187? We can do it! Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. What we just listened to at the top of this episode came to us from way back in 1994 during the fight over Proposition 187 in California. The first clip was from an iconic campaign ad in California's history on behalf of incumbent Governor Pete Wilson. And the second was from his Democratic challenger, Kathleen Brown, our former governor's sister. Listening to them, it sounded like yesterday, but Lewis, this week marks the 25th anniversary of the passage of Proposition 187. And as we remember, it was intended to deny millions of undocumented immigrants their benefits and effectively drive them out of California. We'll be talking to LA Times columnist Gustavo Arellano about the legacy of Prop 187 and where things stand today in the battle over immigration reform. We'll also get an update on ongoing wildfires in California and the impact that they're having on students. Hundreds of thousands of them have contended with school closings, and many were evacuated from their homes. But first, let's contemplate the paradoxical legacy of Prop 187, which I actually covered as a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle, very different time. In 1994, proponents of the initiative argued that undocumented immigrants, or as they called them, illegal aliens, were being rewarded for breaking the law with state services such as education and health care. Let's hear another clip from a campaign ad from then-Governor Pete Wilson. For Californians who work hard, pay taxes, and obey the laws, I'm suing to force the federal government to control the border. And I'm working to deny state services to illegal immigrants. Enough is enough. Does that sound familiar? Yes, unfortunately it does, John. Well, it turned out to be pretty effective. Prop 187 went on to pass with nearly 60% of the vote. And at least in part on the strength of that campaign, Governor Wilson went on to victory over Kathleen Brown. It was a low point for immigrant rights in California. But as LA Times journalist Gustavo Arellano argues, uh, many believe that in the long run, the initiative had the opposite of its intended effect. We're happy to have Gustavo on the line to explain. Welcome, Gustavo. Now, Gustavo, you were a teenager at the time when Prop 187 was passed. You know, one of the most controversial pieces of this, and I think a lot of people may have forgotten this, is that if Prop 187 had gone into effect, teachers and other educators would have been required to identify kids who were undocumented. And if their parents couldn't show that they weren't, they would be expelled from school within 90 days. And that was in there, even though the Supreme Court had the ruling, Plyler versus Doe, a dozen years earlier, that required school districts to serve all kids regardless of their immigration status. I'm wondering, why do you think that very controversial feature was in Prop 187? What's interesting is that the founders of 187 knew that that was going to just set everyone aflame because they knew, they knew about the prior decision, but they wanted a challenge. The people behind it, they wanted to invite a lawsuit by people who were immediately going to say, hey, this is unconstitutional. This cannot be put into effect. And they felt that if they argued it all the way to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court would reverse it. And hence, now undocumented children would not be able to go to public education. Seems like that was a risky strategy because it's quite possible that the Supreme Court would have found at least that section, or maybe the whole initiative, unconstitutional. That's how much 
enmity these people had specifically towards undocumented children that you know they went to dance with the devil and they got the the flame so to speak you know if they had not included that then there would have still been lawsuits against 187 but that's the sword that they fell on and i think in their arrogance they thought that it wasn't going to get to that day that the supreme court would have heard the case and overturned plier and hence you know their dreams of having pristine schools with with no undocumented children would have been uh put into effect in fact, for you and your generation, this galvanized your political activity, didn't it? And had a long-term effect, do you think, on California? Oh, absolutely. It created the modern-day California of today, at least as run by the Democrats, a super progressive state that is literally a sanctuary state and does everything possible to make life as easy for undocumented students. In my podcast, I talked to former president of the state Senate, Kevin DeLeon, who says flat out 187 inspired his entire generation of Latinos to go into politics. And he was one of the organizers of a big march that drew over 70,000 people. You have state senators, state assembly people who said, I marched against 187 in college, in high school. It galvanized an entire generation of Latinos. And so, uh, yeah, 187 did pass, but it's the bitter memory of that win that got all these people to get into public service and say, never again. And in fact, we're going to teach children of this ugly history and and inspire them to fight against any similar propositions, resolutions, or politicians. In fact, you and other students climbed the fence at Anaheim High so that you could join a mass demonstration, right? Well, I didn't. You see, on the biggest day of the walkouts, over 10,000 high schoolers across Southern California alone marched out. And so my high school, they knocked down the fence. So many people were trying to get over it. But I did it. I was, I was against 187. My dad was an undocumented immigrant in the past, but I was just too scared. I, I thought something would happen that would put me in danger. And I did not think that ditching school would do anything. It, it would be completely pointless to do so. The irony, of course, is that for many of my uh, classmates, that march would be the only form of political activism they would ever do in their lives. Meanwhile, me, the one who stayed back, has basically devoted his entire career to repudiating everything that 187 stood for. Let's roll ahead 25 years, and now we have counselors for DACA on college campuses. We have sanctuary cities and emergency plans in many schools across the state. If a parent is swept up by ICE and the local control funding formula dedicates a lot of money for English learner instruction. It seems like a very different place. What do you think? Is that overstating it? Oh, no. You compare it to 25 years ago where you had Democrats and Republicans speaking out against illegal immigration, saying that illegal immigration was a burden to cities and municipalities and the states, let alone the federal government. Now you have a Democratic Party with even hints that maybe illegal immigration should be tapered down. Maybe municipalities shouldn't be on the hook for all these services for illegal immigration. They will immediately be branded as racist. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but that is exactly the political climate that we're at on the Democrats. On the other hand, the Republicans, of course, if you even have any sort of sympathy for undocumented folks, you're immediately branded uh, you know, a sellout, uh, amnesty lover, or whatnot. But that's really the polarized society that we live in. That was, at least for immigration, that was created by uh, the wars over 187. So I just wanted to ask you that, because it does seem like California is a welcoming place for immigrants, as well as undocumented immigrants right now. But, uh, you know, yeah. here, here we are facing this incredible threat 
uh, from the federal government. 25 years ago, the threat was from the state. Now it's from the federal government. And, uh, you know, just last year, there was a Republican candidate, Travis Allen, uh, an assemblyman who one of the key issues on his platform was to deny undocumented immigrants the right to an education. It's kind of uh, amazing. So, you know, I'm wondering whether you feel that we really have kind of crossed the Rubicon in California or whether there are dangers out there that people need to be uh, wary of. What ended up happening also with 187 is that 187 also inspired a generation of anti-immigration activists who saw that, hey, 187 passed by a 59 to 41 percent margin. That was a huge margin. And so they replicated that all across the United States on local and state levels. And now you have a president who preaches very much against illegal immigration in a way that seems ripped from the headlines of 25 years ago. But again, California has always been a bellwether of stuff. So Travis Allen, yeah, he's down here. He's from Orange County. He proposed that he couldn't even get out of the Republican primary. So that, that, that type of rhetoric doesn't work on the state level anymore. Last question. I mean, just looking forward, next week, the Supreme Court will be hearing oral arguments on whether to allow the DACA program to be terminated. And there's a very good chance that it will be. On the other hand, we do see so much happening that's uh, more affirmative in, in California and some other state, as you mentioned. How are you feeling? Uh, just you know, looking at uh, what we might expect in the next uh, five to ten years. I always take the long view of things. So even if DACA gets stricken, and even if this seems like dark days, things take time. Let's not forget, in the 1950s, uh, the United States government executed something called Operation Wetback, where they deported over one million illegal immigrants and more than a few American citizens. And here we are in this political moment. Look at California. We are the example. We are the future. So people who do not like illegal immigration or people who do not like undocumented immigrants or especially school children, you know, you're going against the tide. California is the future. And as I end my podcast, get ready, America, because the future is coming to you. Well, on that note, we've been talking with Gustavo Arellano. He's a features writer with the Los Angeles Times, also was author of the column uh, Ask a Mexican. Thanks for talking with us today. Uh, look forward to being in touch in the future. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Gustavo did a three-part mini-series on 187, and you can find that on Latino USA or the LA Times websites. So, Louis, any other final thoughts on this issue? Well, John, reflecting back on 25 years ago, it was a tough time. Immigrants really did feel under threat, I mean, particularly undocumented immigrants. But it really seemed like we had put that behind us, and now we're kind of in the thick of it again. And we're going to have to see how things evolve. It's going to be a big deal in terms of what the Supreme Court does on this DACA case, which they'll be hearing next week. University of California is the lead plaintiff in the case, which is interesting in and of itself. So uh, it depends on how the court rules, and that ruling could come down any time between March and next June. Well, you know, there are waves of children and parents who are trying to come to California because of the turmoil in Central America. So it's, it's very much back with us. And until this is resolved somehow and Congress reaches some kind of deal, this tension is going to remain. no rain in sight in the north or the south, Californians remain pretty wary about the extreme risks of fire. Meanwhile, schools are taking stock of the costs, emotional, financial, and physical, 
on students and families, on the staff, and of course on the schools themselves. Our reporter Diana Lambert wrote about the impact of the fires in an article this week. She discovered that 1,400 schools lost power for more than a day during the last week in October alone. That's about 15% of schools in the state, affecting about 500,000 students. So we thought we'd check in with someone who has to manage all this in the schools. We're pleased to have on the line Gail Garbolino Mojica. She's superintendent of schools in Placer County. Placer County is located between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe on I-80. Glad to have you with us, Superintendent. It's my pleasure. So this latest round of fires, you were mainly affected by blackouts, not by the fires themselves. Is is that right? That's correct, yes. But you were largely affected by substantial blackouts, right? How, How did that affect your schools and parents? We had at one point 13 out of the 16 school districts were slated to have some degree of a power shutoff uh, during these last months um, PSPS events. And you in the past have been affected by fires directly, is that correct? Yes, probably within the last five or six years we've had a couple of forest fires in Placer County that have been felt by our community as well. You mentioned that smoke is a problem from other fires. Yes, and especially last year with the campfire, we were very heavily impacted uh, with a hazardous air quality in, in Placer County as well. And whenever there is a forest fire that is burning within a close radius of Placer County, depending upon the wind patterns, we can get heavy smoke in the area as well. And so we've had children who have had breathing problems or staff members who have had breathing problems, and that becomes a concern as well. So the PSPS, which is that public safety power shutoff, you've prepared for that because of the fires in the past, right? Whether we were dealing with hazardous air quality or fires, we have over the years developed a pretty good line of communication to our school districts. And and this year uh, with these PSPS, we had a direct line I had a high-level staff member who was in daily communication with the Office of Emergency Services and PG&E. We held daily conference calls with our school districts and relayed information to them. We discussed what were some of the challenges of closing, what were some of the challenges of staying open, and then we would finish the call with kind of a survey of who was going to remain open and who was going to close. So as a result of that, you were able to keep some schools open even though homes surrounding had lost their power, right? We actually kept the majority of our schools open. So out of about 100 schools that were affected in the first power shutoff, we only had three schools closed. By the third PSPS event that we had, we had every school open. So we learned a lot. There was a lot of communication that was going on within the county about what are some resources we could use in order to still have children be available to come to school and be in a learning environment and not lose days of instruction. And and that was a priority of all of our school district superintendents. Talking with Gail Garbellino Mojica, she is county superintendent of schools in Placid County. To what extent in your county, are you just building this into your plans for the functioning of your schools on a regular basis? I can say that going through these events in the whole month of October, we had many school districts that purchased various sizes of generators and were able to keep some essentials powered at their school. Um, And then there's some discussions about whether or not we look at our spring break. And in our county, we typically take a week off for spring break. Should we, in our calendars, build extra days in in the spring so that if you do need to close in the fall, you're able to make those up um, later in the date. 
I think our districts were adamant that we want to make sure that the health and the safety of the students in Placer County come first. And we believe that the safest place for a student to be is at school. So there will be a $15 billion construction bond on the March ballot. Assuming it passes, districts will be eligible for matching funding. Do you think that your districts will be looking for more generators and perhaps other things to take advantage of this money? Um, I believe so. That's kind of the conversation that's happening right now is whether or not they're going to be eligible and what can they do on the facility side on a proactive basis in order to account for what we're being told is a new normal, a new normal for up to 10 years moving forward. I think people now are realizing that we can't continue, that this is not just um, a one-time occurrence that happened in our state, that this is something that we're going to have to be proactive because this is something that could happen in the long term moving forward. Well, as you say, we're in a new normal phase, and so I guess we have to be thinking creatively and outside the box. So uh, appreciate hearing your thoughts. We've been talking with Gail Garbellino Mojica. She's County Superintendent of Schools in Placer County. Thanks for talking with us today. We wish you rain. <laughs> Thank you very much. Before we go, we're bringing you once again a new feature, Voices from the Classroom. Interesting moments our reporters have been able to capture in sound from their visits to schools around the state. This week, the classroom is the forest, as EdSource reporter Sydney Johnson explains. I recently visited a program called the Forestry Challenge. It brings high school students from around the state together to learn technical forestry skills. You're going to get a bag with your tools in it. It will include a compass. It takes place in five counties around the state. I visited the challenge in Santa Cruz. All of the students were divided into teams where they learned different technical forestry skills. We're learning about prescribed burns. So you can't have a healthy forest if you don't have fire to clear it away so that new trees can grow, all the plants can like do all of the thing and the animal habitats will get overtaken by all the plants. As it turns out, California needs more foresters. Statewide, probably nationwide, but certainly statewide, there's a shortage of uh, foresters. Uh, so not, not just for Cal Fire, but for many lumber companies, um, consulting companies, local agencies. Um, so it's a common theme that we see. And this program is trying to train more students to take those career paths. 9.6? So, so that one's too small to measure anyway. So we're just going to measure this one next to it. Uh, we were assigned a plot area so that we would have to figure out how many trees were there and what the diameter of their trees were. Yeah, so it was like a one-tenth of an acre like area that we were measuring in. So uh, like the total amount of board feet that the people working here would get out of the trees. More than a dozen fires were burning across the state of California last week. The state is in desperate need of more people who can help fight fires but also prevent them and work on forest management plans and a lot of different other tasks that's required to protect our forest. Do either of you think you want to go into forestry or some kind of field like that? Um, I don't know, but probably something to do with science or... Yeah, hard to tell. Like, I've always been interested in, like, plants, but it's definitely worth trying. It's worth trying, for sure. It's just, like, a fun... It's teamwork, and uh, it's... There's nothing really like it. That wraps it up for this week's podcast. 
thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. You know, our Newsmatch campaign is now underway, and we would greatly appreciate it if you would make a donation to EdSource to keep work like this podcast flourishing. Go to our website, and you'll see where you can donate. Just find the big Donate button. Thanks to Matching Gifts, every dollar you contribute will be worth $3 to us. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 